one of the things that infuriates me is when people try to tell me what Dr. King would have thought. It's the don't don't tell me that he would be appalled. Don't don't you dare white explain mm -hmm. to me about what Dr. King meant, especially when if you look at his history, near the time of his death, he actually began to realize that violence on this episode of Playtime, from Pink Floyd to Blue Pearl, a conversation with Lorelai and Durga McBroom on the truly historic foundations of their art and thoughts on race and the importance of Viola Davis's performance in Woman King. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. A clear blue sky. McBroom are woven into the fabric and history of this nation, but spring from a place much, much deeper. From jewelry to dance, film to their background vocal work with Pink Floyd, the Rolling Stones to Steve Hackett. These gifted sisters also write and record their own music. Durga topped the charts in Europe with her collaboration with youth resulting in the success of their band Blue Pearl. In 2021, Lorelai launched season one of the new web series, who influenced you? And she is the creator of a line of custom jewelry at jewelrybylorelei.com. Durga and Lorelei also collaborated on their latest album, Black Floyd, by the McBroom Sisters, available at Bandcamp, Amazon, and iTunes. The album features a cover, a cover of Wish You Were Here, which is dedicated to George Floyd. Lorelei is currently on tour with the Australian Pink Floyd in Canada, and Durga joins us from her home in Italy. And I, as I said earlier, uh, I really apologize for my voice. I'm literally just climbing out of bed uh, this morning at about five o'clock and uh, getting over COVID. Uh, we we came down with it uh, unexpectedly uh, this this weekend, and uh, we were fighting it all the way to to today. So this is going to be a great conversation, which we've only sort of. In, in the conversation with you, Lorelai, that we had a couple of weeks back, just touched on, you just teased it, and I had to have you back with your sister Durga to expand upon, not not the least of which, a great family history, which I alluded to in the, um, in the introduction. Well, there's a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's funny you say you, you came down with COVID unexpectedly. It's not as if people actually expect to go. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to yeah. a little bout with COVID. <laughs> you know, and and my wife and I are have been very, very careful. We've masked up. We're vaccinated. And we let our guard down with giving a ride to someone who didn't tell us until she got in the car and coughed on my neck and said, 
Oh, by the way, I think I have COVID. And then it was, it was what? And then it was kind of too late. And it it just, you know, yeah. So, so we just bought, bought soup and cold medicine and throat lozenges and uh, told all of our neighbors and hunkered down and wait for it, waited for it to hit. (laughs) And, uh, and then here we are coming out the other end. So uh, a, a little, a little worse for wear, but not too bad. So it, it could have been a lot worse had we not been vaccinated. Well, we yes. both have had it. Um, uh-huh. Both of us were on the cruise to the edge earlier this year, and right. um, believe I believe that basically there was an event before the cruise where uh-huh. anyone could attend because if you went on the cruise, you had to have proof of vaccination and proof of a negative test no less than um, 48 hours before we left. So I suspect that people got it at the party, brought it onto the ship, and then by the end of the cruise, we had it. I mean, I didn't really have a bad experience with it personally, but I do know, as Durga can tell you about her experience, that it was um, hard for some people. However, Mm -hmm. Durga recommended Paxlovid, uh, which definitely worked, but you have to take it like right away. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, both my wife and I are uh, on uh, high blood pressure medicines, and mm-hmm. there's a uh, you know, so it it kind of it kind of drops us out of of the Paxlovid uh, um, solution. But, really? Because um, my doctor didn't. I I am too, and my doctor t- told me to take it. Really? And, okay, uh, was fine. I All didn't right. have a bad experience either. It just felt like I just noticed the day we were disembarking. Uh-huh. I woke up feeling kind of scratchy throat and just kind of cruddy. And I was thinking, yeah. uh, is this allergies? Or is this as the day progressed? <laughs> I kind of kept it at bay with some holistic means. Our, our mm-hmm. mother was a very gifted MD. She was an internist specializing in cardiology, but she yeah. shifted her entire practice to preventive health care and holistic mm-hmm. medicine back in the 1970s, way before it was really fashionable. So yeah. we've picked up a lot of knowledge. I mean, I've worked in her office off and on for 20 years. Laurel, I worked there too. So I kind of pounded all of the holistic means I could think of because I yeah. had to fly back to LA. And I was hoping it was just tiredness from the cruise and all of that. But by yeah. the time, and I wore a mask on the flight just to be sure. But by the mm-hmm. time I landed, I went straight to the pharmacy to get a test and it was immediately positive. So did it hit you, did it hit you very hard? No, hit, no, I just felt like I had the flu for, I mean, and every uh, every day that I was taking the Paxlovid, I felt immediately much better exponentially as the course of treatment went on. So it, oh, no, it wasn't really terrible. I never broke a fever of more than like 99 point nine or something i, I yeah. didn't have a high fever i just felt kind of crappy my wife had a little bit of a fever but uh it, it at least for me it, it it felt like a like a really nasty flu and with the same the same oh. general duration so uh about yeah. about five days six days and you know I'm, I'm i'm already feeling better i'm more active my appetite's back uh did you lose uh did you you guys lose uh uh sense of taste and smell no nah. No, no, not at all. all no, I, had... I probably would have lost a couple of pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but no. And I was oh. negative within five days. 
Nice. My experience was just a runny nose the day that I went and got the test. And I went mm -hmm. to get the test because Durga told me she had it and several other people in our band had it. So I figured I better find out if it was more than just a runny nose. But other than that, that was it. Mm -hmm. um, and then five days later, I tested negative as well. So I really think sometimes people misunderstand the purpose of the vaccine is not necessarily to stop you from getting it. It's yes. that if you get it, your symptoms are going to be far less severe than if yes. you don't have anything. You know, that's something people need to understand. That's exactly it. Yes. That's exactly it. Yeah, I just Absolutely. had a conversation with uh, Joe Lewis Walker, the uh, the blues guitarist, and he's on tour now. He talked. Uh, he talks about everybody being in the bubble, and I, I know uh, we did a show with uh, with the cast of Chicago PD um, and Chicago Med and Chicago Fire. They were all in that bubble last year, uh, a year and a half ago. Are are you guys? Are you guys kind of in in that where where you're either if you're if you're with the band, you're either in the bubble or or out of the bubble. And if you're out of the bubble, then uh, you have to take certain precautions. Well, I'll say for us being on tour, um, the majority of the band is are British mm -hmm. and their attitude overseas is you've had enough time to get vaccinated at this point, yeah. just let's carry on. So we're not anywhere near as protected as we were when we were yeah. on tour last year and everybody's been all right. Good. Uh, I'm, I'm not, well, my first protracted tour will be coming up in November. Mm -hmm. So, and that will be in South America. So we'll see what their attitudes are like. But given that I live in Italy, it was so strict here. They really yeah. took it seriously. Yeah. And it actually yeah. made me feel very secure. Mm -hmm. Unlike the United States. Sure, there were some people here who protested the safety measures, but for the by and large, the vast majority of people here, because Italy was hit hard so early on and hit so hard, I mean, lost yeah. huge swaths of an entire generation of elderly people here. Yeah. Um, people weren't complaining. You get on the you get on the train or the bus or any public transportation, people were masked. People are still mm -hmm. wearing masks mm -hmm. on public transportation, but it's at this point it's it's not compulsory anymore. You had to have a green pass to show that you were either had tested negative within the last 48 hours, or you get a super green pass to show that yeah. you were vaccinated. I got my third booster here in Italy as well, because they had a station right at Fiumicino airport. You could walk off the plane, get vaccinated and go on about your business. So mm -hmm. I went in, got my third booster. I've now since had my fourth booster back in California. And you couldn't go into most businesses unless you had a super green pass at one point here. So now, because people were so stringent before, things are far more relaxed. You don't need a green pass anymore. As a result, I feel much better about it all. I seriously, I would be shocked if I got it again. I mean, anything is possible, touch wood. But yeah. um, I, I still wear masks on flights. You guys, you guys did it right. You took it seriously in, in Europe. Well, given that we come from a medical family, we'd be kind of stupid not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, what, what part of Italy are you, are you in? I've traveled extensively all over. I live in Rome in an area oh, okay. called Trastevere, uh, sorry, Monteverde Vecchio, which is uh -huh. right next to Trastevere. Okay. So it's right near the oldest part of the city and I love it here. 
haven't haven't gotten that far south. We've been to Tuscany, Tuscany a few times, and uh, and in uh, in and around Venice a half a dozen times, and um, it's just uh, I, I can't say enough nice things about about Italy. It's, it's yeah. beautiful. October eighth, I have a charity show with a band called Wit Matrix up in the north of Italy, yeah. in a place called Schio, which is mm-hmm. uh, not far from Venice. Is the okay. Venice? Well, Venice and uh, Vicenza and Padova. Yeah. Are the nearest major cities yeah so yeah. that's october 8th um you said you're you're going to be touring starting a tour in uh south america is that uh is that part of a new blue pearl tour or is no that... that is with the first band that invited me as a special guest is a uh-huh. band called the end okay and they're out of buenos aires and so i will be reuniting with them after many years uh where i wasn't able to come back to Argentina because the economy there is really, really not in a good place, but they finally got a new promoter who wanted me to come down. So we're doing five shows in November and then another several shows the following March. Terrific. Terrific. And I'm going to ask you in, in a little bit about, uh, about about some new blue pearl uh, music because I've got I've I've got a I've got a DJ friend in Great Britain who uh who would not forgive me if 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 I didn't ask you so we'll we'll get to that in just a bit so so you think you can tell heaven from hell blue skies from can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? Smile from a veil. Do you think you can tell? Did they get you to trade your heroes for ghosts? Hot ashes for trees. I was really struggling where to begin with both of you, and I was listening listening again to to your Black Floyd album, especially Goodbye Blue Sky, your beautiful cover of that uh, of that classic Pink Floyd song. Lorelai and I spoke earlier about your version of Wish You Were Here, and I kept going back and forth over which of your parents was most influential. Um, but the more I read, I just couldn't come to a consensus. Can can you guys help me out? Um, well, first of all, I believe it's a combination of both of them because they both had very different personalities. Mm-hmm. Daddy was very, very um, comfortable kind of putting his best foot forward and meeting celebrities. And he gave us the sense of uh, confidence to go ahead and meet whomever we wanted to. And um, they both encouraged us that we could accomplish any goal that we put our mind to um, with their total support, which was incredible. Whereas our mother was more, uh, especially when she was younger, she was quite shy and um, just put her head down, did her great work. I mean, she was a straight A student all through school. 
And by the time she was ready to go to college, she got enough scholarship money to put herself and her sister through college. Mm. And not so, just any college, the University of Chicago. Yeah. Well, Aunt Mary, um, I don't know where she went to college. Durga, do you? Um, didn't she go down uh, in to, oh God, I'm, I'm, Tennessee? I'm Fisk? Yeah. Yes, that's not right. Fisk. Did she go to Fisk? I think or she did. The, what's the other one? The I'm not BCU. sure. I'm not sure, uh, in, but I think she anyway. went to Fisk. Yeah, I think she and did. She was a I school teacher. Right. Um, she specialized and she in, won um, awards. Yeah, yeah, and she specialized but in I will special say, education. As, mo as mom got older, and especially out of her involvement with Est uh, and Werner Erhard in, in the 1970s when all of the self-help things exploded, mm -hmm. she definitely came into her own in terms of being more um, aggressive socially. She became a seminar leader where she would you know, lead the seminars from the front of the room. And definitely she may have grown up shy, but I know I got a lot of my sense of confidence from her. Yeah. I mean, her, her patients used to call her God. That was her nickname. <laughs> a lot of them called her that. Uh, and she was a very, very powerful woman. Both of our parents were, our father was a, a lot more gregarious in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And he was like, he didn't care who you were. He'd walk up and, you know, talk to everybody and kind of sneak us in to meet, you know, Lauren Bacall. And uh, we, our, our oldest sister, Marcia is going through some old archival photos and just found a photo of us with daddy, with James Garner. He didn't, I mean, he walked up and introduced himself to Eleanor Roosevelt. And when she was doing a tour of the country to see um, the state of the country, especially with regards to people of color and how they were getting along during the depression. And yeah, he sort of became an advisor to her, correct? Well, she, she started what she called her Negro Brain Trust, which was some of the yeah. bright young black uh, people she met in her travels and daddy became mm -hmm. one of them. And there are actually some of their correspondences in the Smithsonian. Wow. But you're, you're so your father attended Wilberforce University uh -huh. and and then joined the Air Corps in World War II. Did I did I see correctly that he was uh, that he was one of the Tuskegee Airmen or. Um, yes. Yeah, he was. That's correct. Yeah. He was in the control group, fortunately. Uh, had he not been, we might not be here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Did did he ever did he ever talk about that at all? No, well, he really didn't share a lot about his experience with us. But um, uh -huh. my son did kind of extensive research on his military history mm -hmm. and found out that um, he was a warrant officer. So okay. that gave him the right to correspond directly with the White House. And he was also allowed to attend college during a large period of his commitment to the military. Mm -hmm. So he learned about tropical medicine. Um, he did contract a couple of pretty serious illnesses at that time. Mm -hmm. um, however, he was, I see it as a certain, a certain protection that I believe Eleanor afforded him in him having that position. And he, so he also worked um, as a waiter before, before going to college. Um, mm -hmm. on, with the Pullman Railroad Company. Yes. Um, yes. Was was he? he was so he porter. was a he was a union man, wasn't he? 
Were they were they the porters well, I unionized? Guess you had to have been. Yeah. I, I were the Pullman porters unionized? I would. I don't really know. I would tend to doubt it because the vast majority of them were black. Yeah. And I don't know if blacks were allowed to unionize back then. But I really don't know. So. Well, the reason I ask that is is because don't know. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of people may may realize that their history of of labor rights. So there, there's there's the there's the the Pullman labor strike of 1893 unionized the 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 railroad road workers. I don't know if it if it unionized supporters. I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say I think it did, but I, I I'm not sure. Having having been in a union myself, I know that they you know they tend to split uh, work um, work provisions, and so so I I, I I'm not gonna say 100. percent the one thing that I remember him telling us that had a huge impression on me as a child mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is when we would go out, because obviously they attained, uh, they attained doctorates. Mm-hmm. So we were in the middle class and we would go to really nice restaurants in Bel Air or Beverly Hills or wherever. But he emphasized to us, I used to be a waiter. And I want you to keep that in mind with the people that work here in this restaurant, that that could have been me. So please offer them respect because that was my um, history. And that had a huge impression on me that wherever I went, no matter how nice it was, because we were always going to nice places to keep in mind that the people that a lot of the patrons were kind of ignoring were human beings as well. Mm -hmm. And when we further, when we went to live in India at the ashram with Swami Muktananda, our mother Mm -hmm. took us there shortly after uh, our grandmother, her mother passed away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we were living in Malibu and, you know, I was a very spoiled little girl. I had, I was 13. I had my 14th birthday in Ganeshpuri. And when we got there at first, you know, I was mad because, you know, there was no TV and I couldn't see my friends and I couldn't eat cheeseburgers because we didn't eat meat when we were there and blah, blah, blah. And then I really started to take in what we were seeing. I mean, when we had to do the drive from what was then Bombay and is now Mumbai to uh, Ganeshpuri, which is about three and a half hour drive, just leaving the city of Bombay and seeing these entire villages or like mini villages made of these tents of cardboard boxes and trash bags basically were the structures and these these little mini villages that sprung up on like trash dumps and things and people lived there Mm -hmm. and seeing such intense abject poverty really put my life into perspective for me and started to make me realize how fortunate I was and then getting to the village of Ganeshpuri. And once the little village children learned your name, when they saw you, they would all come running to greet you. And they found out my name was Durga, you know, which is what Swami Muktananda named me. And mm-hmm. they'd see me and they'd go, hello Durga, hello Durga. And they'd all run up and they'd all hug me and they were all just so friendly. And I started, and I was thinking, why are these people so happy? They, they have nothing, they live in the dirt, you know? And then I started talking to people and they explained in the Hindu belief system, being born, just being born a human being is a huge privilege because it means you have the opportunity to become realized and, and ascend to become one with the divine. 
Whereas if you, you know, because they believe in reincarnation and all that, if you weren't born human, you didn't yeah. have that possibility. So they were just thankful just to be alive in a human body. And that also really humbled me to make me realize I have the best life. I have so many advantages. And for me to be spoiled and pouting is ridiculous because I'm so blessed. And that really, really stuck with me to also treat other human beings with dignity and respect just because they're human beings. That's, and I uh, recently found out as well that daddy was also a chauffeur for a two, um, that beautiful black singer that um, lived, had to move to Russia. Paul Robeson? Yes, he was a chauffeur. He was his chauffeur? Yes. When you come to the end of a perfect day and you sit alone with your thought while the chimes ring out with a carol gay for the joy that the day has brought do you think what the end of a perfect day can mean to a time His first wife and I had quite a few conversations related to my working on a piece about our father. Um, and she told me that, yeah. And the reason so, he got to meet Dr. King was because she worked for him. She also did work for W.E.B. Du Bois and that's how daddy yeah. met him. Yeah. Uh, so he, your, your father falls uh, in, in this interesting, uh, this interesting space in between the resistance to civil rights and the assertion of civil rights, where he's where where somebody like like uh, Robeson is really, I mean, <coughs> he, he he did such such amazing work and sang such such brilliant songs with regards to civil rights, almost almost in in a line of of say Malcolm X uh, mm -hmm. for for his time. But your 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 father kind of lived in that in that in between world. But his his grandmother was also well, where where he could he could see he could see the resistance, and he and he could see he could see the possibilities. And well, so, how is that so, the in between world? I, I'm not understanding what you mean by that, because he was a staunch supporter of civil rights. Absolutely, along yeah. with Harry Belafonte and other civil rights leaders of the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I, I guess I'll illustrate it this way: with with Martin Luther King on one side, portraying at least the beginning uh, a, a peaceful re, uh, peaceful resistance, and Malcolm X being the being the oh, uh, the voice of of absolute resistance. You don't give me yeah, rights. Okay, so hold on. Hold These on, are hold my on, rights. Hold, Go ahead. Let me stop you. Let me yep. stop you right there. Go ahead. The history of the civil rights movement has been greatly whitewashed mm -hmm. uh, to make it palatable for people mm -hmm. who don't really want to face the fact that 
there was a need for a civil rights movement in the first place. Yeah. And um, the FBI and other government agencies purposely set out to kind of make Malcolm X the evil foil to the supposedly more docile Dr. King. Exactly. <clears throat> when the truth of the matter is, Dr. King was actually also seen as a public enemy mm -hmm. uh, and was nowhere near as docile as history has since watered down his message to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, you know, his letters from Birmingham jail, I recommend highly for anyone to read to really see some of what yeah. he thought. Yeah. Especially his admonishments of what he deemed the white moderate, that they seem to be a greater impediment to civil rights in many ways than the straight out Klansmen or what have I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shall our understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow to social progress. I had hoped that white moderates would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who- As long as you just kind of hold things in a allow for the explosion or the pushback that needs to happen, preferring instead to keep things calm and basically not talk about things, that is a much bigger impediment to the, the movement of the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Uh, not to mention the fact that by the time, you know, people, I get into trouble on Facebook a lot. I get blocked by the Facebook all the time because I get in fights with people. One of the things that infuriates me is when people try to tell me what Dr. King would have thought. It's the don't don't tell me that he would be appalled. Don't don't you dare white explain mm -hmm. to me about what Dr. King meant, especially when if you look at his history near the time of his death, he actually began to realize 
that violence was in some cases, if not necessary, just inevitable. Yes, he was. Uh, and so he was not quite the pacifist that everybody makes him out to mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of his life. Because he also was quoted as saying, riots are the language of the unheard. If you keep shutting people down and saying, oh no, well, you can't protest here. No, you can't protest like that. No, you're being anti-American, blah, blah, blah. Then yes, people will riot. And then you wonder why. We're on the same page, and I truly appreciate that uh, that that clarification. Um, so, so that's where that's where I see your your father existing, kind of between between those two those two forces, and where he's talking with Eleanor Roosevelt, and Eleanor Roosevelt helped promote or helped um, helped elevate. Um, Mary, uh, Mary uh, McLeod Bethune uh, to to a higher position in in the administration, but there was still that reticence of of allowing uh, allowing blacks that that a the agency that they were due. Am I am I correct in that? Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We still have that problem, even yes. though we now yeah. have a you know. A woman of color as vice president still so, have that problem. It, uh, indeed, it, exactly. Um, so let me let me fast forward uh, this a little bit and see if this doesn't make a little bit more sense. Your your father was friends uh, or was an advisor to RFK, Robert F. Kennedy, and and I I believe well, I go ahead. He was. Uh, set to meet with him the night of the assassination to become one of his speechwriters. Okay. But didn't he didn't he accompany him on on a trip through Watts? Laurel, I'm not sure about that. Do you know about that? I I'm not sure as well. Um I know that he did an interview with um Sheldon Walden where he talked about being there the night that Robert was shot. Yeah. And he may have elaborated yeah. in that interview about his previous interaction with um Robert mm -hmm. Kennedy. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, we'll, we'll play a little bit of that here in the, in the, the final piece. Um, but I, I thought I heard, I thought I heard a little bit about that, that he, that he had had accompanied Robert F. Kennedy through uh, for, for a tour of Watts. Uh, it's one thirteen here over WBI Shelton Walden here on Walden's pond. My guest is uh, Dr. Marcus McBroom, who is a psychologist and uh, he, uh, during 1968, he organized a speaker's bureau. He headed up a local speaker's bureau formed to support the Kennedy campaign, and he had accompanied the senator on his visit to the right to the right torn Watts ghetto of Los Angeles. And he's going to talk about um, that night, that uh, terrible night on uh, June fourth, uh, fifth, so, 1968. So this, so this is this is my question. Even if he didn't, just just the engagement. I can't recall in my lifetime a presidential candidate who made an effort to reach out to disenfranchised communities like the community in Watts, like RFK did, which which your father would have been because he was so vocal about civil rights, would have been easily a, a, a part of that that process. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It, 
It's interesting. I have heard now, I don't know if this is true or not, uh -huh. so take it with a grain of salt, but I heard that someone mentioned Robert was actually at one point considering taking on Martin Luther King as his running mate. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering wow. the think evidence about evidently is that they were white <laughs> Think about what would have happened had that actually happened and had bitterness, both of them not been brutally assassinated. Right. And Blows your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, that is incredible. But the thing okay. is, is that with Hoover in um, the position he was in in the FBI, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was never. That has every reason. I mean, that explains why so many of these fantastic dreams that we have for what could have happened never did. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. determined to put an end to all of it, which yeah. is just really sad. So yeah. what does what does growing up with with your father and mm -hmm. and that that optimism that he brought to to politics do? filtered through the prism of, of what you just said about Herbert Hoover and, and what this country's done uh, to, to Kamala Harris and to, uh, to the Obamas. And I was, I was referencing J. Edgar Hoover. You mentioned yeah. Herbert Hoover. Well, let's, oh, let's, I'm, I'm sorry. Let's, I meant J. Edgar Hoover. Sorry. Okay. Let's, let's just clarify some things. Yeah. The United States, the fact is, was built by white supremacists Mm -hmm. for white supremacists. Mm -hmm. The whole judicial system, the uh, electric, uh, you know, election system, every, all of the systems were designed by white males for white males, for white males yeah. who believed that they should control the country. Yeah. And uh, even though things have slowly been changing, that is still the foundation upon which the United States was built. And mm -hmm. anyone who wants to argue that point is not looking at history and what yeah. the actual facts are. Even President Lincoln was quoted as saying the Civil War was not fought to free Blacks and give them uh, an equitable position in society yeah. because he didn't believe that Blacks were equitable. He thought that we were inferior. And he did not want to give blacks the right to vote or, you know, any of the other rights that whites normally enjoy. The civil, I mean, sorry, the civil war was fought, quite frankly, to remove the financial advantage that the southern states had due to the fact that their economy was bolstered by free slave labor. Mm -hmm. That right. is the only and main reason why the Civil War was fought. It wasn't for some altruistic reason to grant equality to all citizens. 
Mm-hmm. And Lincoln can you can he's actually said that. Look it up. Right. So people need to stop being so surprised because it has, you know, we are still fighting that same fight. When you see people yeah. in 1965 holding up signs in the street saying end police brutality against blacks, and you see that same sign being held up in the street during the George Floyd protests, you can see that some things have not changed. Yeah. Yeah. Has has anything changed or is it is it slow to change or is it just a different flavor? My feeling is that all of us naturally have a certain impatience when it comes to wanting to see change in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. There's certainly been change if I look at how things were when our parents were children in the 1920s versus the way things have been for my son in the 2000s. However, there are some things that have not changed. And I believe it's because of the way that we're taught to perceive each other. Like Durga said, going to India gave us an insight into what really abject poverty looks like Mm -hmm. in a way that we were not seeing at home and that we had not learned about in school. But the experience of seeing that for me, and I'm sure for Durga as well, gave us another insight into humanity that I feel the United States is missing because we're always told we're number one, we're the best. And you can see it. I know Durga has seen this as well when we travel because she and I have traveled internationally extensively between family trips and touring with various bands. Mm -hmm. Um, And Americans are generally quite arrogant and come across like we're the best and we have everything and blah, blah, blah. When in reality, we're a very young country. I feel like we're kind of like spoiled teenagers at this point. Yeah. Whereas if you look at ancient societies, they've come through certain things that we're still battling with and learning mm-hmm. about. In particular, the way in which um, religious beliefs affect the way that people view the government. Um, Mind you, I'm not ignoring the fact that we've got uh, countries like Iran that are theocracies Mm -hmm. and they're quite old. However, um, that's just how I perceive it, that we have a lot to learn about the humanity of each other, setting aside our cultural differences. Having respect for that is really important. And I think that if we could respect and understand each other's cultural histories more, mm-hmm. that we would have a lot less problems. I was going to say, you, Lorelai had mentioned that you wanted to touch on what's happening around the release of The Woman King. Yes. I yeah, definitely I was... want to get into that conversation. <laughs> um, let, me, let me do this very quickly, because I was going to go there in just a moment, but I wanted to, I wanted to cover this just to sort of uh, put an end cap on on this part of the discussion. Your father was there, as you said, the day of uh, the day that RFK was shot in Los Angeles. That he wanted to get downstairs to make a press statement that would be put on jets to get to Europe for the European early morning news. No, oh, this is there. This is the day before. These are the days before videotape. Right, and so <laughs> this then was the then when the decision was made that he would go through the kitchen. Now, he had a man, I forget his name now, uh, and I don't remember any of these names particularly, but he was a, was a red-headed former FBI agent was his personal bodyguard. Oh, I, uh, yeah, um, I think his name was hey, Bill. My understanding, he had gone down kind of to check the room and see that the room was secure. 
so so now he came off the stage. Now where were you positioned? I was, as I said, standing on a raised, elevated platform for the the American Broadcasting uh, Systems Television cameraman. Yes, we're standing there, and of course, Senator Kennedy uh, stepped back through the the drapes on the stage. Yes, and uh, it was in a few minutes. Now, shortly after he stepped back through the drapes with his wife and Jesse Unruh and some other, uh, and P.S. Salinger, you're the pow, pow, pow. Mm. And about this time, the woman in the polka dot dress ran out of the kitchen saying, we got him, we got him. Mm. A man who was identified uh, for me by the Federal Bureau of Investigation agents, two of them interviewed me twice, how did that affect him or his optimism or his view of of race relations in America or what conversations did he have with either of you about that and the implications of of that? Well, I'll say this. We were quite young mm -hmm. um, yeah. when all that happened. I remember the first time I ever saw Daddy cry was when Martin Luther King was killed. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. And um, he was very much affected by that whole period because yeah. it was like he had a opportunity or it appeared we had an opportunity to actually have real um, racial justice in the United States that was being acknowledged from the top level mm -hmm. as far as the government you know between John Kennedy and then Robert yes so he was deeply affected by the fact that clearly there were roadblocks being put up and they were quite serious yeah go ahead Durga yeah well you know I was born in 1962 so I was a baby when all this happened. So I didn't really speak to him about those um, particular incidents. But one thing that he always pressed upon us was that the only way to really advance as a person of color in the United States was by having a solid education. Mm -hmm. And that education was the key to advancement, which is why he really pushed us to you know, better ourselves and, and go to college. And he was quite angry with me when I dropped out of UCLA because I was on the Dean's list. And at first I originally wanted to go into medicine like both of them until I, as I got older, well, I started working in my mother's office, which is, you know, not a whole lot of fun. It's not very glamorous. <laughs> and then I started at the same time discovering performing. And I was like, wait, hold up, wait a minute. Me, I can be on stage and people will pay me for this. <laughs> Medical school, performing, shit, it was no contest. <laughs> and he was very angry with me for dropping out of college. Uh, although six months later, I landed my first major film role in Flashdance. Mm -hmm. And then when he saw me on stage at the Rose Bowl with Pink Floyd, it's, I'm very blessed to have the experience that a lot of children want to have with their parent, which was he acknowledged that I had made the right choice and he was very proud of me. And that meant a lot to me.
The thing, William, also that you may not be aware of is that our two older sisters from my father's first marriage mm -hmm. were also in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And they had a huge impact on both of us in terms of wanting to perform. Um, they were dancing in Aida at the Met when they were teenagers. Um, Dana toured with Catherine Dunham. Kid. Yes, Catherine Dunham was their teacher and mentor. Um, <clears throat> so that had a tremendous influence as well. Um, and they traveled quite a bit to Africa because of their mother and her mm -hmm. involvement with the United Nations. And as I mentioned, she worked for Dr. King. She worked with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. She used to play piano for Harry Belafonte, which is how daddy ended up meeting him, um, as well as they had a school for the arts called the Lee Max School in New York in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. So um, that gave them a way to meet a lot of entertainers. So there was always this balance between the entertainment thing, our interest in medicine, because I also was interested in being a surgeon, but I knew because I have a reading disability, it would be very difficult for me to get through all those years of medical school. And I had a, a talent in singing, so I pursued that you know, with their support. But the interest in politics has always been there because of him and his dedication to civil rights and politics and exposing us to his experiences and an insight into how it all works. So let's let's open up this can of worms here because I think uh, I think it's going to be a juicy one. Uh, in our previous conversation, uh, you were bothered by uh, the deficit in teaching in this country about uh, about strong African, especially female African characters figures. Have either of you seen Woman King? First of all, with Viola Davis. I have not seen it. I'm waiting to see it. I've been advised by friends, you must see this film. Yeah. Um, I've also yeah. watched Viola Davis discuss her life and her recent book with Oprah. I watched mm -hmm. that a couple of days ago. Um, apparently they did it probably back in March. Um, but I got insight from that as well. Uh, and I'm very anxious to see it. I can't think Me of too. another film that depicts a uh, a historical period. She she's a fictional character, um, but but more or less based on on real characters or, or a compendium of real characters. Yeah, in in a well, in a real place, okay, real time. So, Go ahead. Uh, it's not released over here until October second. So okay. I haven't had a chance to see it. 
Um, I actually have a, a WhatsApp group of black women who mm-hmm. have immigrated to I- Italy and mm-hmm. we're planning a group trip together because I'm excited. If I don't see it with them, <clears throat> I'm gonna go to England and see it with one of my best friends who's oh, nice. American who lives there. My king, the Europeans wish to conquer us. They will not stop until the whole of Africa is theirs. We must fight back for our people. You are asking me to take them to war. War. Some things are worth fighting for. Quentin Tarantino made Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. about World War II. Has that scene where he burns up all the Nazis in the movie theater and completely rewrites history. Yeah. Same thing with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. completely changes history to where the Manson family murders never happened because the Manson family was killed next door. Did anybody raise bad an eyebrow? No. But the minute you have a story that's based on historical figures, but it's not meant to be a documentary, mm-hmm. right? and the main character is a dark-skinned woman and People are like, oh, I'm going to boycott this because this and that. There's one other point that people are not remembering here. To put the Dahomey on the same level as the European colonizers who started and um, perpetuated the Atlantic transatlantic slave trade Mm -hmm. is ridiculous. No Atlantic slave trade, no European colonizers colonizers, the Dahomey would not have been in the position they were put into. And as a matter of fact, it's very disingenuous to say that they were just gleefully in reaping the benefits of the slave trade. It's not that cut and dried, and it's far more nuanced than that. And the bottom line is, Hollywood looks at green. They don't care about black and white, they look at green. (laughs) And if a movie vehicle starring a dark-skinned black woman does well at the box office, we will see more movies like that. And as a dark-skinned black woman, I'm all about that. And I would like to see more of our stories told because then people can get into our skin and see things from our side so we don't seem so different. Not to mention the fact that it's normalizing dark-skinned black women as beautiful and powerful. Whereas before we have always been the sidekick, we've always been not the cute one. We have not been, you know, the blonde with the flowing tresses who was seen as a Eurocentric ideal of beauty. When you see a powerful black warrior goddess, then little girls see that and say, ooh, I wanna be that. That's beautiful, that's desirable. So I'm all for that. So anybody trying to boycott this movie can kiss my ass, no. (laughs) Stop being crabs in a barrel and pulling ourselves down. I don't care as much about how the story is told than the fact that the story is being told. Mm -hmm. So again, this is another answer to your question about have things changed? The fact that Black Panther as a film Mm -hmm. was one of the most successful films ever released 
is also a sign that yes, things have, are changing and going in the right direction. Um, but again, as I said before, it's going to take time. I, I saw somebody on Bill Maher once, I don't remember the man's name, but he was a, a historian. And he was saying, we have to look at where were things 500 years ago compared to now? Can we see improvement? Yes, it may take another 500 years before we see really major improvement. Well, obviously we won't see it, but as a, a society of a race of people, human beings, that we may advance past the ignorance that we're experiencing right now. And it seems like it keeps going up and down. You know, we've got a far swing to the left, a far swing to the right, and back to the left, back to the right. And eventually maybe that ball that's swinging will find someplace in the middle and just stay there. I don't know. Well, there's also a biological aspect to this. Well, first of all, it seems to me that, you know, like Miles, you know, the Lorelai's son, my nephew Miles, his generation and generations younger than he, the farther you go, the younger you get, the less inclined they are to care about race. And partially that's because there are more and more biracial and multiracial children being born. Mm -hmm. So the lines are blurring, it's not so stark. You can't just say, oh, are you black or are you white? Because some people are many. And that obviously is going to happen more and more to the point where humanity is going to become homogenized to a certain degree after several more generations. Mm -hmm. I mean, the United States supposedly is not going to be primarily, you know, predominantly white after I believe it's 2045. So all of this white supremacy nonsense is going to literally literally be bred out yeah uh, were you surprised by or are you surprised by by the backlash uh, against against the film and against viola davis given that it's no. it's so high quality and the performances are so good uh, uh, what what do you what do you ascribe that to <laughs> um it's ignorance. there is a certain yeah. syndrome what's sorry I said it's ignorance. Well, yeah, on both sides. And the, the, the problem is in the black community, I hate to say this, but there's a very deeply ingrained tendency to pull down our own. And it was ingrained in us during the times of slavery. Yeah. Because those that held mastery over the enslaved knew that if we joined forces and realized that there are there's strength in numbers and used our power then they they would be sunk because we were many and they were few same thing with apartheid in south africa so it was deeply ingrained in our culture to find reasons to pull each other down and mm -hmm. colorism is part of that and i think this reeks of colorism and uh, a term that I've recently become extremely acquainted with misogynoir, yeah. which is not just misogyny, but it's misogyny against black women, especially dark skinned black women. This hasn't hasn't that always been the case though? Haven't, haven't black women been, been the last uh, to, to reap any, any benefits of, of civil rights? 
black even women in their own have community. been at the bottom of the totem pole of civil rights since there were civil rights, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Uh, I actually wrote a poem or I started writing a song called Atlas was a black woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> even um, within feminism. So, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the suffragettes movement, the suffragettes, oh, everybody thinks, oh, in the 1920s and whatever, and Susan B. Anthony and all of them were fighting for the right for women to vote. Yeah. They specifically excluded women of color mm -hmm. from their struggle. A lot of people don't realize that. But yeah, they only wanted white women to have the right to vote. Lorelai, I'd love you to weigh in on this. Well, there's no question that we've been... Um, looked at as uh, savages, the black women are like sex objects, which we're constantly being portrayed as, or we have particularly historically portrayed as in films, in television. Um, Durga can tell you about her own frustration as an actress who st she studied uh, Shakespeare in college However, when it came to casting her in films, because she's tall, she's 5'10", dark skinned, they wanted her to be a prison inmate. Hooker. Hooker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if they asked <laughs> you to play a maid, but you know, we've been stuck- I played a maid in, in a production at UCLA. <laughs> okay, so you know, we've been stuck in these stereotypes for a very, very long time. And I don't think they've been completely broken. It's better than it was. I see way more Much. productions today where Black women who are not um, Beyonce's shade, and I'm not saying this to mm -hmm. have any make any insult to her, but it's been more palatable for Hollywood to cast light-skinned Black women because then they can say, okay, well, we've got someone of color in this film, as opposed to someone that looks like a Viola Davis. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. it's incredible for me, I just love her as an actress anyway, but she talked about the power that playing Annalise Keating in um, How to Get Away with Murder gave to her. Yeah, um, How to Get Because away with she got to show that, yes, this dark-skinned woman was sexual and not as a hooker or something disgusting or to be looked down on. Yes, she had an affair within her uh, marriage, but her husband also did had an affair. So all of a sudden she just became a woman going through her experiences. It wasn't about whether she was black, white, or any other race. She was just seen as a human being. And ultimately- Although, wait, I just gotta interject one thing. There's that scene where she sits in the mirror and she takes off all of her makeup. Yes. And she sits there naked, face completely, authentically her mm -hmm. and i know i'm not the only one who burst into tears at that scene because she was so naked and vulnerable and raw and real and so beautiful in her vulnerability in that scene and powerful in her vulnerability that was like a life-changing scene for a lot of people, I think. I will never forget seeing that and applauding, standing up and giving a standing ovation to the goddamn TV that she went that deep with it. And I think wow. in opening herself up that way, that also changed public perception of who we are. I think she is so incredibly beautiful. She's it's just luscious and, go, and, and oh, she's one of the best actors 
male or female, of our generation. Racism is built into the DNA of America. And as long as we turn a blind eye to the pain of those suffering under its oppression, we will never escape those origins. The only safeguard people of color have is the right to a defense, and we won't even give them that. Which means that the promise of civil rights has never been fulfilled. Due to the failure of our justice system, our public defense system in particular, Jim Crow is alive and kicking. Laws that made it illegal for blacks and whites to be buried in the same cemetery. They categorize people into quadroons and octoroons. They punish a black person for seeking medical attention in a white hospital. Some may claim that slavery has ended, but tell that to the inmates who are kept in cages and told that they don't have any rights at all. People like my client Nathaniel Leahy and millions of people like him who are relegated to a subclass of human existence in our prisons. And she continues to break no down the walls and barriers to see that we're just us. We're just people. We're just like everybody else. We just uh, have that. spoke about that. <laughs> She spoke what? about that. She spoke about her choice to take Not the sure. wig off, take the makeup off, be completely raw, vulnerable, and then confront her husband as she did in that scene about um, the picture on her on his phone. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and she spoke about how important it was for her to be that truthful, that vulnerable, and that raw. So um, I think it's sure. beautiful that it affected you in that way, Durga. Um, I thought it was, in, I was a huge fan of that show, period, no matter what. Yeah. I know we used to talk about it as a girl. Did you see what happened? Yes. Don't you remember we used to talk about it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to put an end cap on this. Um, and say, never mind the the ultimate hypocrisy. Uh, this this uh, the film Woman King takes place in the 1820s. Uh, and, and the, the ultimate hypocrisy comes from a nation which proclaims itself the last best hope of mankind with a constitution declaring that all men and women are, are equal. And, and it so, say that. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, it's, it's supposed to, because we've interpreted it that way. No, um, no, no, you don't think no. so? Stop, stop, stop making, making excuses. They said exactly what they meant. When they wrote okay. the fact okay. that it is still being taken as that should tell you something. I mean, yeah. people just yeah. say, well, well, it's it's implied. No, no, it wasn't because women weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't even uh, I mean, it took a while for women to even be allowed to own property. It's, yeah. I mean, it yeah. recently is 1970. It took a, a lot for women not to be property. Huh? It took it took a lot for women not to be property. Yeah, that, yes. that too, exactly. So, um, you know, which is why it is hilarious to me that people are still clinging to this unbelievably archaic, anachronistic Second Amendment right to bear arms and completely misinterpreting what the Second Amendment was for. A lot of people don't know that the reason they wanted to allow for a well-trained militia was for the Southern states to make uh, slave militias to put down any potential slave uprisings. That's one of the main reasons that the Second Amendment was added to the Constitution. 
And now when I see these yokels in Idaho, he's talking about, oh, tyranny, and you're not going to take back that. It's like, (laughs) dude, they could fly a drone (laughs) over your house at 3 a.m., heat seeking with infrared vision and fly a a missile up your poop chute with laser like (laughs) accuracy. What you going to do with your little AK 47? Yeah. Your little, you know, with your little AR 15. You're not going to do shit. You're not going to overthrow any tyrannical government. Are you out of your mind? People, right. don't get me started on this. And before anybody gets all bent out of shape, I am a gun owner. Lorelai isn't. I own a gun. I went through the process. I got licensed. I have a handgun. I have a, a nine millimeter. Do I think it's going to save me if Joe Biden decides that I'm <laughs> an enemy of the state? No. I'm not stupid. You know, so, I've uh, I've told uh, this story a thousand a thousand times. I I I almost went into the Marine Corps. I, I went through Marine Corps ROTC. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, qualified on a on a Marine Corps uh, uh, firing range. I fired every damn damn near every weapon. I came from a cop's family. My brother is a is a born again Christian Texas cop. There's not a weapon. Wait, we we used to own an AK-47 for camping in uh, in Alaska to make noise, and it, it you know you could drag it through the mud if you needed to, and it would it had stopping power for an angry moose or or a bear if you needed it. But we we since sold it. Yeah, I I I can cite chapter and verse about damn near any weapon. The day of my dad's funeral a few years ago was the day of the of the uh, uh, the massacre in uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, just about 150 miles away. We had a bunch of uh, a bunch of Texas cops that were there. Uh, The reports were coming in live over their radios at the memorial. And one of them made a comment to me. If some, if a good guy had been there with a gun, this wouldn't be happening. And I, so I made a comment and he shot back. What don't you Yankees understand about the second amendment? My brother to his, his great credit, who we've had knockdown drag out fights about all kinds of politics, turned and walked away. And I unloaded on, on the, on this cop. And I said, you tell me what I need to know about the Second Amendment. I come from a cop family. I fired every weapon known to man. I've been in combat. So you tell me what I, 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 I was a hunter. You tell me what I need to know about, about a weapon. You guys will nickel and dime the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment to get confessions, evidence, whatever, whatever you need to do. But suddenly the Second Amendment is completely off limits. My, my feeling is, and, and much, much like you, Durga, ha- have a gun, half a million guns. I look at the same way that I look at, at guns as, as I do you smoking next to me in a restaurant. I, I, I don't know who you are. I don't want it on my table or over my table or past my table. Have a million guns. Keep them in your garage. If it goes off your property, we got a problem. But if you and I, I told my my uh, my nephew this, who's uh, 
in the 82nd Airborne. And he he asked me about, about this conversation at, at my dad's funeral. And I said, if you have to carry a gun every moment of the day because you're afraid somebody's going to ninja in on you from every direction in your house, you don't need a gun. You need meds. Yeah. And, and you know, sorry. Um, go ahead and finish. No, no, that, that, that was, that was all I wanted to say in that. I, I, okay. I really love your, your thoughts. There's, there's a very simple one word answer when people uh -huh. say, well, if a good guy with a gun had been there, they would have stopped it. You know how you answer that? Or, or don't you think that a good guy with a gun could have stopped it? One word answer. Uvaldi. Yeah. That's all yeah. you got to say. That's yeah. all you got to say. Yeah, well, they I'm had 135 so, I, good guys I, with guns and nobody did, did anything. I cannot <clears throat> imagine how those parents feel. Yeah. I cannot. I, it keeps, I mean, I cried over it because I mm -hmm. cannot imagine knowing that my child was in there yeah. and yeah. could have been saved, but died a horrific death in fear for, you know, for an hour. Yeah. Because yeah. of some bureaucratic bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's unconscionable. I yeah. personally think it's worse than what the public was told by the media because yeah. of the fact that um, a friend of mine who's in this band, British, brought to my attention. There have been several cases where people have tried to, they've even gone to the Supreme Court to hold the police responsible. And it's been deemed they're not responsible. If they yeah. feel their lives yeah. are in jeopardy and threatened, they do not have to protect us. So, and this has happened right. over and over and over again. Yeah. And to me, that is the basis or should be the basis for why we shouldn't have legal guns. Yeah. Handguns are the worst, um, but uh, automatic weapons, all of them, because the police don't have to protect our children. They don't have to protect us. They don't have to protect anyone if they feel that their lives are in, are, are in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I feel about that. And I didn't know until very recently that that is the way it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the, the Second yeah. Amendment is, is, is strictly about marketing and not in sales and not about uh, any, any well, yeah. civil rights. And our, the NRA vastly shifted public perception as to the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. handguns are the worst in terms of suicides and um, killings at home, but mass shootings, hands down, the AR-15 is the weapon of choice. Nobody yeah. needs one of those. Now, hang on a minute. I actually have shot one. I've shot an AR-15 and they're a sexy gun. I get the appeal, but you don't need that. You don't need one of those to, I mean, unless, as you mentioned, unless you are in Alaska with the potential to run into an angry moose, uh, a Kodiak, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, or polar bear, or a, um, a grizzly, you don't need one of those. You don't. And in fact, a shotgun would work probably better against yeah. those animals than an AR-15 yeah. yeah. in terms of a deterrent. I've come up against black bears more than once uh, and they don't like loud noise. <laughs> but uh, AR-15s and AK-47s, all those Uzis, all those kinds of weapons, they're, they're designed for one thing and one thing only, and that is to kill humans yeah. 
absolutely quickly right. and efficiently. Since this is this is an artist blog or this is an artist podcast, um, I began here a number of years ago. I've, I've got five books in print, and one of the things that I learned very early on as a writer was that you incorporate the world around you, not the world that is idealized for you, and and that by encompassing the world you gain you gain a greater audience and a greater voice and so that's always been that's always been my focus as as a writer and an artist is to uh, and 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 that's my view actually of of how this country is supposed to be in in terms of human rights it's it's not a narrowing of rights that we've seen from from one party specifically but it it should be it should be an encompassing and an, an opening that that allows for the greatest the greatest number of participants do you do you agree with that absolutely yes i mean let's look at what the quote unquote on paper what the united states is supposed to to be as you yeah. mentioned you know all men are created equal and supposed to be about equality for all. Yes. So first of all, yeah. let's remove men from that statement. Mm. You know, all people yeah. are created equal. Yeah, now, if that's that is the premise of the United States, then we should be equally represented throughout the media and throughout our governments and throughout everything. Mm -hmm. Because supposedly the biggest, one of the biggest successes of the United States is that it was a cultural melting pot. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. it was designed to be so that people could, of all walks of life and all faiths and all races could all have an equal footing. That's right. To create whatever life they wish to create based on whatever efforts yeah. they want to put forward. Yeah. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that that is unfortunately a lie. It's not truly the reality. And the closer it gets to that reality, the more pushback you see from who really is running things. The Lorelei is that. I mean, is that I got pushback an gonna... with somebody about Little Orphan Annie when you know uh -huh. they made a movie a few years back with yeah. a black Little Orphan Annie, but she's not black. She's mm -hmm. white with red hair. And why do they got to make her black? It's like, well, first of all, the race is not integral to the story. Mm -hmm. There are black orphans in America, <laughs> and if you really want to be real, the original Little Orphan Annie, that bitch ain't got no eyes, okay? <laughs> she got two black buttons where her eyes are supposed to be. So where, where do you draw the line? <laughs> and they didn't understand that the reason they had such a hard time letting go of the original version yeah. is because no other version was ever allowed. She would not have been allowed to be a different race up until a certain time in our history. Mm -hmm. It was not allowed. Yeah, yeah. Laura, Laura Lai, is, is, that, well. is that tension uh, an indication maybe that, that we're getting to a point of breaking through that, um, that resistance? Or is it just... Is it just part and parcel of of the uh, of of that racist demographic that they're that they're going to dig in their heels no matter what? Well, 
I was going to mention the fact that um, when my son was little, he's 29 years old mm -hmm. now, but when he was mm -hmm. little, um, HBO came out with fairy tale for every child. Okay. And what they did was they took traditional children's fairy tales and they kept, they made the characters from different races. Um, the little mermaid was, I think she was Japanese. Uh, Princess and the Pea, the princess was Chinese. Uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, he was black. The giant mm -hmm. was black. Uh, they changed everything. I mean, Rumpelstiltskin, the... the <laughs> The evil character in that was Jamaican. He was hysterical. It was um, <laughs> it was one of my favorites. So I feel that there have been some efforts made to try to take away the racial characterization of these classic stories as having to just be from a European root, although they may have been in origin as far as where the stories came from. But mm -hmm. there's children's stories from every culture. And I think that people are making efforts to try to change that, which is why they've done this Black uh, Little Mermaid. Um, and I agree with Durga completely that the issue is not the children's reaction to it. It's the parents. Yeah. It's yeah. the parents that have these preconceived notions about what's acceptable and how to tell these stories. And the children really just enjoy a funny story or a clever story. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because they don't have yeah. those and, and parents are feeling like parents feeling like their childhood is being assaulted and the memories that they have of their little precious childhood. It's like, it's, you're not a child anymore. This is not about you. It's about your child. But even and more importantly, that, sorry. No, no, go on. More importantly, I feel that the ultimate message, which was what I was saying in our video for Wish You Were Here, is mm -hmm. that we're all part of the same race. We are human beings. Yeah. The human race may have different, um, you know, different ethnicities as far as the color, depending on where your ancestors grew up. But we all came from Africa. Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah. End of story. Everybody's yeah. DNA will confirm Everybody. that. Yeah. So if we can get past this illusion that there's one race that's superior to another, because mm -hmm. it goes all the way around as far as I'm concerned, we're just human beings. And we need yeah. to be able to see each other as human. It doesn't mean that you don't recognize that there are cultural differences. I don't believe in being colorblind because yeah. to me that erases the fact that we have different traditions that we come from, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. I'd like to learn about them. I think they're fascinating. That's why I like traveling. But that to me is the ultimate message is that we are human. It's those perspectives yeah. that, are, that, are, that are very important. I, I think I told you, Lorelai, that I'm working on a book called The History of Light for the Artist, where I talk about the ascensions of uh, the steps of, of cultural evolution and, and, how it's, and how it's guided our, our, our social and physical evolution. And I was thinking about this the other day that uh, I was doing some research on, on the Black Death and nearly half of, of the human population uh, died. So everybody living today is, is, is from that surviving half. Um, so there, there are these oh, bottlenecks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Go ahead, please. Don't you just mean in Europe? No, this is global. The Black Death was global. Half The Black Death really ravaged yeah, Africa? 
uh it, it, it ravaged the entire world yeah yeah half half the planet okay. um 500 okay. million people 250 million people are estimated to, to have died um but but uh, my point being that there are there are bottlenecks genetic bottlenecks in history the 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 first people that came out of of africa uh numbered in the dozens so that's one of those genetic bottlenecks from which everybody else on the planet arose and so we keep we keep going through these bottlenecks um and and i i think i think we should we need to use those as uh as examples of our ultimate connectedness our ultimate survival so so those those couple of dozen genetic lines that came out of africa fed the world and then those half you know half a billion uh genetic lines that remained after after the black death um that that repopulated the world it's these it's these bottlenecks that that lead us back to that those those ultimate ancestors well, I've only seen one depiction, and I'm not saying that that means there's that it is the only one, uh -huh. of um, people coming out of Africa, people who were ancient people, mm -hmm. actually being brown-skinned. Mm -hmm. I never see any uh, illustrations of cave people with dark skin. Yeah. They're always yeah. fair-skinned. I'm like, well, wait a minute. African mm -hmm. people lived in caves, too. I know right. that um, I saw a, a documentary that was done by the BBC that spoke about the fact that there were African people that had come from Africa to Australia and at that time sailed to what is now Brazil. Yeah. And that they met with the people that were there. They were Inuits. They interbred. They warred. The Africans lost. But there are cave paintings that depict these battles with these African people. And then there are ancestors uh, that are, were living at the time of the peace was done in the 90s that talked about stories they'd heard from their ancestors about battles and about these African people. And they found bones of an African woman that they dated to prove that this was all true. But we don't ever hear about any of that. We never learn about that. Yeah. We are not, we are kind of erased from the history of the development of human beings. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a huge problem. Look at look at what happened when European colonizers came to the African continent and found these wildly yeah. advanced civilizations that were in some cases more civilized and more advanced than some of the European cities. Yeah. And that's why you see the widespread destruction of a lot of these antiquities and these art pieces and where mm -hmm. the very obvious African features and the noses have been deliberately destroyed yeah, so that yeah. nobody would know that these people looked like black people. Yeah, Nubia, um, the Mali, just, uh, you know, Mali Empire and, um, right. um, and the Great Zimbabwe, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And I mean, when you think about the fact that the seat of the, of the Kush Empire mm -hmm. is basically underneath the water that uh, was created when the Aswan Dam was built. That whole seat of yeah. the Kush Empire yeah. was flooded. And the Kush were, I mean, people always look at Egyptians and, and think about 
the um, the Arab influence and that they're all very light and all of that and don't realize that the Kush Empire uh, coexisted for quite some time and they were black blackety black Africans because a lot of the the proof has been destroyed. Um, there was one other thing I forgot I wanted to mention when we were talking about the Little Mermaid. Yes. Which also relates to how attitudes are changing, not only racially, but in terms of sexuality and gender identity. Mm -hmm. So many people uh, that are Miles's age and younger, the whole notion of gender is becoming so much more fluid and like not a big deal. You know, people yeah. sticking to gender roles is changing, which I think is fantastic. Um, and people don't realize the original story of The Little Mermaid, it was not a happy story at all. Right. And Hans Christian Andersen, a lot of people suspect that he was gay and that he was writing this story about his unrequited love for a heterosexual man. And basically, he represented himself as the little mermaid who loved a human that he could never be with because they were too different. And in fact, in the original story, the little mermaid winds up dying and turning into sea foam because she doesn't get her prince. But right. um, when you think about that added gender aspect to the story, I find it very interesting. Uh, and the fact that people are, I mean, ugh, I'm living here in Italy right now and they just elected the first female prime minister, but she's like wildly far right and very yeah. anti-LGBTQ uh, and all of that. A lot of people here that were saying, you know, Salvini was um, elected a couple of years ago and he was very far right and he only lasted for about six months. So hopefully mm -hmm. she'll be voted out again pretty soon. But it's like, why are people so threatened by this? It's like, do you, do you. It's, don't worry about what they're doing over there and what they got in their pants and what they're doing in the bedroom. And if they want to wear a dress or if they are trans. And that's the other thing is that people need yeah. to catch up on the science of being uh, trans. Mm -hmm. I have some very, very close friends who are trans. My yeah. ex-roommate is trans. And um, I learned so much by living with her that someone as liberal as I am realized I had some preconceived notions that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and I learned more about the science and how the brain chemistry and even the size and the brain cerebral landscape yeah. of a trans person resembles the sex that they identify with. Mm -hmm. That is not just somebody, somebody like a man wanting to put on a dress. Your brain is telling you that you are a different sex. Yeah. And if you look at the chromosomes and they're, oh, it's fascinating when you look at the science of it because it is based in science. I'm so sick of the ignorance. It, it's, it's exhausting to me that people want to it, it's, be prejudiced it, against It's interesting people. to me that the people that, that, that fly the banner of freedom um, and right. shout and shout the yeah. abstract notion of freedom uh, would would rob people of uh, of the freedom to be who they are or call themselves yeah. what they wish. Yeah, and people like saying, "Oh, I don't want a trans woman in the bathroom with my with my little girl because they're going to molest them." No, they're not. 
Yeah. You know who gets molested? I had a very dear friend who was a very um, outspoken trans activist. Unfortunately, she died a few years ago. Mm. Uh, she was 14 and was living at, I mean, she basically, I believe she was born intersex actually. And she uh, presented as female, mm -hmm. uh, decided to, you know, she was female. When she was 14, she was forced to use a men's room and she was raped and contracted AIDS wow. because of that. Wow. And she looked like a little girl. I mean, what the hell is wrong with people? It, that's the other part of it too, is that so many of these people who are so virulently uh, anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ are closeted mm -hmm. themselves. And they have this deep-seated anger at their attraction for trans women so yeah. much so that they'll hire them, have sex with them and then kill them because yeah. they cannot face their own conflict. I go ahead. I could go on with you guys all day long. You're absolutely wonderful. Uh, but a dear friend of mine is one of uh, Great Britain's uh, top DJs, Pat Mulligan. Okay. He had a uh, he had a hit single okay. in 1996 uh, with uh, DJ Project and Alexa called Mary's Prayer. Uh, you probably heard of it. I, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and he would be really upset if I failed to ask you, Durga, uh, if there's if there's a, a, another Blue Pearl album in the making. OK, so here's the deal. I just started yeah. performing again as Blue Pearl. I did my first Blue Pearl gig live yeah. in like 35 years at Leeds Pride uh, this last August. And it was fantastic. Okay. There is a whole new Blue Pearl album. Uh, and it's like 95% finished. We need to finish mixing and mastering it. We've done it ourselves on our own backs over the last several years. Mm -hmm. And we just want somewhere to release it. Uh, we could self-release, but I want it to get the attention it deserves. It deserves yeah. to have the machine behind it that a label has. Um, so it's it's already waiting for the right person to snap it up. And I'm Is actually it? talking to somebody about it. Is so, it is it is it going to is it going to be like because uh, Gods and Lovers, um, which you wrote yeah. on on Black Floyd, is really inspired and it reminded me of uh, Blue Pearl's chemical thing. comparison but um no it's the mood and the like mood and the tone okay um there's a there's a lot uh, 
the new Blue Pearl album has a lot of real retro deep house kind of sound. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, then there's a little bit of trancey kind of stuff because Blue Pearl has always kind of crossed those, okay. those genres or the, the, those areas. Yeah. And then there's some more techno-y kind of Giorgio Moroder-y sounding stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's got something for everybody. We just have to get it out there. Nice, nice. And Last I'm quick question. To do so. Uh, you guys, uh, you guys are featured on uh, the, uh, the the twenty in twenty nineteen on Steve Hackett's Underground Railroad. How did that invitation come about? Well, we had been performing on Cruise to the Edge, which is okay. a cruise that goes out pretty much annually, sponsored by the seventies band yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, we were working with an artist named Dave Kersner. We've been singing background vocals on his projects since 2015. And on the album that he was promoting on the cruise, Steve had a solo. So Steve sat in with us. And after that, he approached me and he said, wow, you guys are real singers. (laughs) (laughs) That was so cute. And he said, I'd like you to work with me. And so he asked us to sing on the Underground Railroad, which is a song he wrote after reading the book. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's a great detailing, song. Thank you. Um, the experience of uh, what the Underground Railroad was about, and he wanted authentic American Black singers. So he asked us to sing lead vocals on it, which we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience going to do the recording at his home studio and just getting to know him a little bit. Steve is a wonderful person. So did he ask you to collaborate on it a little bit or or was it sort of that the conversation that that uh that we had about um uh about the you know the 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 management styles or the collaboration styles between pink floyd and mick jagger you know one's one's looser one's one's more strict in their in their writing what, what was that collaboration like uh durga uh he let us do our thing pretty nice. much. I mean, the song was written, obviously. So we had yeah, to sing yeah. the lyrics as written and the melody was yeah. there, but he let us really expand on it. And he just kind of sat back and let us do our McBroom sisters thing. Cause we really vibe off of each other when we're working together and we come up with parts and he had yeah. some things that he wanted, but then um, there were other things that we came up with. And obviously the ad libs are all ad libbed on the spot. And then there's uh, a bit in the song 
where his vocals first come in and I heard this drone, I was thinking of a train and I came up with the and you can hear that and it sounds like a train. Mm-hmm. Um, so he let me throw that in there and you know, Lorelei does these amazing ad-libs in it. So he's, Steve Hackett is just all around one of the nicest people to not only as a person to be around, but to work with. He's very gracious and very, um, nothing like David Gilmore uh, in terms of David is very exacting mm-hmm. and very precise and knows exactly what he wants. Although once he gets what he wants, then live, he would let us kind of come up with some things. Steve basically hired us for a reason and he let us do that reason. <laughs> nice. But they're very nice, very nice. Yeah. And we're going to uh, be well, doing some more. Oh, great. Great. I, I can't wait. Um, you guys are both very gracious. Um, it, it was so wonderful. Lorelai and Durga McBroom, the McBroom sisters, magnificent. Uh, LorelaiMcBroom.com, where you can also find her artwork, jewelry by Lorelai.com and McBroomSisters.com. This was so wonderful. Thank you both. Oh, one last thing. Yes. Uh, tell your friend Pat if he knows any labels that might want to put out the Blue Pearl album, get a hold of me. I sure will. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, and you I'm can sure find I'll me be... on Facebook. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be in touch with him uh, very shortly. All right, guys. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you, thank Bill. You. What is true love? How does it feel? How can you tell what's false and what is like to thank Lorelai and Durga McBroom for their time and candor and the great memories and great insights that they offered on the show. Links to the McBroomSisters.com and Lorelai.com are in the notes below. If you like this program, please subscribe and show your support by sharing it on your social media and with friends. Until next time, I'm W.C. Turk. Shaking in the face of what you've shown Oh, it's faith and blessed state of grace Or simply putting your hand